0: please open in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and if you stand, I'll be reading verses 2 through 16, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16, and if you notice how quickly we're we're moving through this passage, you realize that we're going to be reading through this a lot more. Nonetheless, good to ground ourselves in this uh, passage of Scripture so that we might understand it even better as we work our way through it. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 2. Now, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angel's. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Please be seated. Submit yourselves unto God. Is it not right upon the very face of it? Is it not wise? Does not conscious conscience tell us that we ought to submit? Does not reason bear witness that it would be best for us to do so? Submit yourselves unto God. Should not the creature be submissive to the Creator, to whom it owes its existence, without whom it would never have been, and without whose continuous good pleasure it would cease to be? Our Creator is infinitely good, and His will is to love, to submit to one who is too wise and heir, too good to be unkind, should not be hard. If He were a tyrant, it would be courageous to resist, but since He is a Father, it is ungrateful to rebel." He cannot do anything which is not perfectly just, nor will he do aught which is inconsistent with the best interests of our race. Therefore, to resist him is to contend against one's own advantage, and like the untamed bullock, to kick against the pricks to our own hurt. That's Charles Spurgeon on the nature of submission, and certainly we are working our way through a passage that the world does not like when it comes to submission, yet at Its foundation at the very base of all of this is our submission to God and our submission to his authority as expressed through his word. Now, men love to exercise authority, and when they're put in positions of authority, they will, unless restricted or held accountable in some way, always seek to expand and maximize that authority to their own benefit. What every man needs to remember is that all authority comes from God, and thus he is answerable to God for its proper exercise. This is uniquely true for men in their God-given spheres of authority. Every man must remember that he exercises any authority only on loan from God and that God will hold a man accountable for every word and action that that man undertakes in the exercise of his authority. So what we'll see this morning is that God has designed the universe to operate under his authority in such a way that Christ exercises a unique headship over men in which he directs and holds men accountable in their exercise of authority over others. God has designed the universe in, to, to operate under his authority in such a way that Christ exercises a unique headship over men which he directs men and holds men accountable in their exercise of authority over others. Male authority is bounded and directed by Christ's authority. Now, 1 Corinthians 11, we have really only studied verse 2 and have introduced verse 3 in light of trying to figure out what in the world verses 4 through 16 mean. And it is important for us to do all of this groundwork because these issues of male and female headship, of man's submission to Christ, even of the idea of of God being the head of Christ, really as it reflects itself in the cultural conditions going on in Corinth and the very nature of our hearts when it comes to uh, submission in relationships, these are things we have tremendous confusion on. And of course, that's only been, you know, it's been accelerated over these last 20 or 30 years. So we're taking some time to dig into these issues. Things that Paul says in verse 3, you know, the depths of, of the nature of relationship and hierarchy and submission and authority, he just kind of says in passing to kind of set the groundwork and then launch into the real issue that he wants to get at. Yet we need to work our way through these things so that we remind ourselves again of what the church has always known and believed about the nature of authority, about the nature of submission, about the nature of our response to God. So we've been working our way slowly and we talked about last week the nature of hierarchy, authority, and submission that it's built into society, it's built into the church, it's built into the family. There's a created order, a spiritual order. I mean, even the idea that, that perfect angelic beings, beings that are perfect, the angels that did not fall, they, even they, in their perfection, they have a hierarchy, they have leadership and authority, even, uh, even amongst the angels that do not sin. And also, we discussed the fact that even in the Trinity, there is a kind of authority and submission. Now, we're going to have to work our way carefully there. That's coming in a couple of weeks. We don't want to misunderstand what that actually entails. But nonetheless, it is built into this passage where it says God is the head of Christ. So we're going to have to work our way carefully through what is implied by authority. And probably we ended last week by drawing out five Implications or really five applications uh, of the fact that there is hierarchy in relationship, that there is authority and submission built into all the relationships that are in the universe. These these were the things we ended with. Authority and submission are an indispensable element of God's eternal plan. Two, authority does not imply superiority of ability, personhood, intellect, spiritual spirituality, or value. It may be that one is superior over another, as God is superior to us but that is not implied in any way in authority. Therefore, submission does not imply inferiority of ability, personhood, intellect, spirituality, or value. Hierarchy, then, does not inherently promote abuse, domination, coercion, or manipulation. And authority and submission are based on biblical love and wisdom, not tyranny and domination. Before moving on to the particular issues in Corinth, even though we have set that groundwork, it's important for us now to understand what Paul means in verse 3. So we're going to dig into each of these phrases, each of these aspects of headship. And you'll remember that the very first time we introduced this passage, we spent all our time discussing what the word head means, the nature of headship, because it is foundational to this passage and to authority and submission relationships throughout the Bible. So we'll look at each one of these in turn, Christ as the head of every man, the man as the head of a woman, and God as the head of Christ because Paul's main point is that everyone has a head to whom they are accountable, and they must exercise their authority in light of that accountability. No one exists without accountability to someone else. So let's begin with Christ as the head of every man. First, this is a unique relationship between Christ and men, and I'm convinced that that is men as in males. Certainly the word man can be used in a general sense, men and women. But here it's very clear. He begins with, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman. He's not changing. He's not saying, well, Christ is the head of men and women, and then men and women are the head of women. No, man remains consistent throughout this verse. He's speaking to men. Why? Because he's going to be addressing them in light of their unique authority. And he wants to be very clear that as he, as he clearly lays out that the man is the head of a woman, that first and foremost, that man's authority role over a woman is to be understood in light of every man's authority or submission underneath Christ and Christ's authority over them. The proper exercise of authority is always carefully bounded again by the authority above us. So Paul's being very careful to introduce this first and to let men know that they have a special, unique relationship to Christ as their head when it comes to their exercise of authority. Now certainly he's head over them in every way, and he's certainly the head over men and women. Christ is the head of the church. So that is true, but here we're speaking uniquely of men. So as we define each of these terms, everything here matters, Christ Well, Christ certainly is the God-man, the perfect one who walked upon this earth and submitted himself even to his own creatures, that he would be crucified by them. But this is not speaking of Christ in his submission role. This is speaking of Christ as Savior and Lord. Each of those, both of those roles give him the right and authority to rule. So both Savior and Lord are titles from which Christ rules. So this is Christ as the head the anointed one, the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, who as Savior and Lord has the right to rule, and most specifically in this passage, has the right to rule or exercise his authority over men. Christ is the head. We spent a lot of time on that. I'll just give you the definition, remember. This concept of headship is that the head relates to rule and authority, the position or station from which authority is to be lovingly exercised for the good of those under authority and to the glory of God from whom the authority originates. This is an authority term. And Christ is to exercise his authority over men. He is the head, which means, therefore, that they are required to submit to him. Christ is the head of every man. Well, how many men? All of them. The Greek there is all. Every, and in this case, without exception, all of the male portion of the human race. Now, this has specific application to the church at Corinth, the Christian men. But it is also true that Christ is ahead of every single man who has ever existed without exception. And they are to recognize that. They don't. And in the church, we uniquely recognize it because the Spirit of God has granted us power and illumination to do so. But every man is and will one day bend the knee to Jesus. And what does man mean here? It is those who are male. Now, you will notice that I included a definition. I don't do that to be cheeky, all right, in one sense, you know, well, what's a man? Because this is tremendously debated. In fact, if you look at the literature now, science will tell you, the vast majority of scientists uh, will tell you that there is no real definition of male. We don't actually know what it is. And of course, there's male, and then there's man, there's sex, and then there's gender. So we're going to confuse all these things. A little while back, I did a did a uh, men's retreat for Crossway Bible Church, and so I took some time to really work through what I would consider to be a, a definition of, of man or maleness that really... Uh, gets ahead of a lot of the objections made to the fact that there is male, that you can define it, and that you can't put a bifurcation between male and men, between sex and gender. So this definition, although not perfect, of course, I think helps get at most of the problems when it comes to trying to define men uh, or male and female. So a man is, is, is whom? What is a man? All right, A human being with XY chromosomes and the potential to be a father who is created in the image of God to express human capacities according to biblically defined manhood. And we're not going to spend the whole sermon on this definition, but it's important. There's a certain physicality that is represented here, the XY chromosome. There is a potentiality which is vital. That is, men are those who have the potential to be fathers, the potential to generate sperm. No female can or ever will be able to do this. They will not be able to generate, to create that which would enable them to be fathers. Only men can do this. God has built them in that way, and it is part of the definition of who they are as male. Of course, then also they are created in the image of God, and they express their human capacities according to how the Bible defines manhood. And the Bible has specific rules and roles for those who are men. So you cannot make a distinction between male and men. There's no distinction between sex and gender. one They are one uh, and the same. They're united together. Now, to kind of flesh out that definition a bit, and I commend much of the work of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and they wrote a really essentially a definition of biblical manhood and womanhood, a whole book, and it's a great place to start. It was written a while back, but uh, they've updated it some, and it's a great place to start in this whole, you know, in this really mess of what is now manhood and womanhood. They do a great job, and this is John Piper's definition of, of, of what a male is, what a man is in light of Scripture, and I've kind of modified it a bit, but Essentially, it is to uh, what it is to be a man, what it is to be maturely masculine is to understand and embrace the unique aspects and responsibilities of being specifically created as male in the image of God, including love and submission to God, conformity to the image of Christ, leader and worker in culture, friend and co-laborer with men, empowering servant leader and protector with women, loving provider and servant leader as a husband, shepherd and servant leader and teacher in the church, loving disciplinary nurturer as father. Men have roles. They have roles on the basis of the fact that they are male. And God has specifically designed them to accomplish these things. And in doing so, God has created a unique relationship with men in which he is their head. When they exercise authority, they must always understand that they have one who exercises authority over them. And this is something that men love to forget. They will acknowledge the fact intellectually, they will acknowledge it as Christians, and yet they, want to, they tend to want to live their lives in light of their own personal autonomy, and we're taught to do this. This passage destroys that concept. Men, you have no autonomy when it comes to the exercise of authority. You are under authority at all times. And you must be very careful to recognize that as you are living out your authority roles that you have been given as a man. And that's what this passage is all about. Men exercise authority, but they do so with Christ as their head. So let's consider what that means. First, Christ. this, this deals with Christ, as I mentioned, in his role as Savior and Lord, Certainly that includes humble service and all of the things that go into being a true leader. But nonetheless, he's exercising his role as the one who has the right to rule and have authority. As Savior, he has the right to exercise authority. You might have forgotten that. The fact that he is the Savior means also that he has the right to rule. So turn to Philippians chapter 2. And that's why you can't really, you can't put a distinction between Savior and Lord. The Savior is the one who is Lord. As Savior, he has the right to rule as Lord because of what he's accomplished as Savior. So Philippians, and and these are familiar verses to you, Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ's willingness to lay down his own life in submission to the Father. And for the redemption of his people demonstrates his worthiness to rule over them. It did not earn him the right to do that. It demonstrated the right that he was worthy. This was acknowledged by God in in exalting him back to his right hand, to the place of authority and glory that had existed before. Christ did not earn authority or exaltation in his incarnation and sacrificial death. He demonstrated his worthiness of it. He may rule you because he is your savior. He died for you, rose again on your behalf, and he has the right to dictate every portion of your life without exception. Men, do not forget that. Your Savior is your Lord. But of course, he also rules as Lord directly. That is, the the very creator God. He has inherently all lordship, all right to rule. The master, the one who rules over all. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, verse 15. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, or the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. But don't miss the next verse, underline it, star it. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. He is the creator who is fully God. And he has the right then to rule all things over all creation and certainly over men by the nature of his being the sovereign Lord of all. So this is how Christ is exercising his authority. as savior, the one who has the right to rule because he is the one who saves and has the right to rule because he is the sovereign Lord who created all things and literally holds them together by the force of his own will. Who will say to this one, you may not rule? You may not be head over He is worthy of it, he deserves it, and he demands it. He is the head. Well, how then is he ruling in what relationship? Why does it say men? Again, because this is speaking specifically of men in their role of leadership and authority. That's number two. So number one, Christ in his role as Savior and Lord, that's that's the relationship going on here, that's the headship relationship, man in his role of leadership and authority. So Christ rules over men as they rule. Again, he's, he rules over them in every capacity, but that's what is specifically being highlighted here. He is to treat them. So man, when he rules, he cannot lead in any way that he desires. He is to treat others, those over whom he has authority, in light of his responsibility and accountability to the risen Christ, who will one day return and require him to give an account for the stewardship that he's been given. And by the way, ladies, you're not allowed to tune out on this message. Because you are to be encouraging, praying for, and and longing for the men in this room, in this church, in this world, and the men that live in your house to be like this. You are to to encourage them in this. You are are to pray for them. You are to understand and know. My young ladies, you must understand what, what the responsibility of a man is and look for men who know and who understand that responsibility. If they don't, they're not ready for marriage. Back off, step away, wait until they truly understand what this means. Otherwise, you will end up in a serious world of hurt. Men need to understand who they are in a society that has confused them and harmed them in every way, but of which they have been entirely complicit in that very harm and in that very confusion. So, men being addressed here as those who submit to Christ in their roles of leadership and authority. How does this work? Well several different aspects in which men are to to submit to Christ as leaders. Well, men submit to Christ in their leadership in the workplace. It isn't that only only men lead in the workplace, but men are certainly called to do so. And as they lead in the workplace, they are to submit to Christ, Ephesians 6, 9. Masters, do the same things to them. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. Every man who is exercising authority in the workplace needs to understand that he does so under the headship of Christ. Christ is to dictate the way, the means in which he leads. Not the business practices, but the principles of leadership. And this is true for unbelieving men. They ought to submit to Christ as they lead in the workplace. They do not but they would be much better off if they did. And so certainly Christian men are to model this in every way. Cautions 4.1, masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness. Why? Knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Men, don't forget that. As you exercise leadership in any place of work over employees that you might have, you are to do so under Christ's lordship, under his leadership, and therefore you are to treat them commensurate with that submission to Christ. Next, men submit to Christ in their leadership in the government. Any place where a man is in leadership in a governmental uh, post, he is to submit to the lordship of Christ. You would be in political office underneath Christ's lordship. Romans 13. Rulers are a, not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil You want to have no fear of authority, do what is good. You will have praise from the same. For it, that is authority, governmental authority, is a minister of God for your good. I understand that the vast majority of secular rulers have no concept of this. They do not realize that they are God's ministers. And they are, whether they acknowledge it or not. But for Christians, any person who is in a place of governmental authority is to recognize this truth. You are to be a minister of God for good. And we certainly call on all government officials everywhere in this country and around the world that they are to bend the knee to Jesus Christ and they are to do what is good. They do not. It is not under our authority to force them to do that. Christ is not personally, directly exercising his authority in that way over other governments. He will. It's coming. He allows governments to go their own way for a certain period of time. But that doesn't mean we do not call them to do what is right. We do not simply cower back and say, well, you're not Christians, so you don't have to do what's right. We call them to do to this, even as we understand that it's outside of our sphere of authority to try to force them to do this. But we will call on them and we will pray for them to do this. And if you're in governing authority anywhere, you are a minister of God and you submit to Christ ultimately. So men submit to Christ in their leadership in the government. Men submit to Christ in their leadership of the home. All men, right, in any marriage relationship, are to submit first to Christ as they lead their wives. Unbelieving men have no concept of this, do not understand what it means, and yet they still are to do so. They're called to do so. And by the way, men will be judged on the basis of their refusal to obey this command. Of course they'll be judged on the basis of their sin. Right? They'll end up in eternal hell if they don't bend the knee to Jesus. But this will be part of their judgment God put them in a place of leadership and authority and they refused to bend the knee to him. And they abused and harmed the people under their authority. They will be held accountable for this, but that will be before a holy God. But they will not escape from that accountability. Not in the home, not in the workplace, not in the government. Well, We're gonna spend a lot of time on men and their role of leaders in the home and their submission to Christ next week. So I'll just simply remind you that that's true. Ephesians 5, 23. The husband is the head of the wife. How? As Christ is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. So you men are to exercise leadership in the home but only under the leadership of Christ. That comes first. He's your head. And so you respond to his leadership. Fourthly here, men submit to Christ and their leadership in the church. Yes, men are to lead in the church, and exclusively men in the church, as elders, as those who shepherd. But they must first understand that they exercise that authority as shepherds underneath the authority of the chief shepherd, and this bounds their authority and guides it, directs it, shapes it, and keeps it accountable in the proper place. First Peter five, go ahead and turn there. First Peter chapter five, verses one through five, or one through four. Therefore, says Peter, I exhort the elders among you. And again, in the church, it is exclusively male leadership, men as elders. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, authority, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, According to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Why? Look at verse four. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Every under shepherd, little S shepherds, has a chief big S shepherd who is coming to hold them accountable for their job of shepherding. Every elder in every church ought to be aware of the lordship of Christ as their chief shepherd and they do everything in light of the fact that he is holding them accountable and will hold them accountable for how they treat the flock. They may not choose to do what they desire. They may not invent this on their own. They may not do so in their own autonomy and their own authority. Every elder of every local church is to submit fully to the lordship of Christ over their leadership of the flock. They will answer for how they feed, protect, discipline and oversee the flock they will answer for how they love the flock, nourishing, cherishing, serving, and giving their lives to the flock. So it's not only in their exercise of authority that they will be accountable to Jesus, but in their exercise of love and servanthood, because this is how Jesus led. And he will hold them accountable to be as he. So in all these ways, Christ is the head of every man, and most specifically and uniquely, as men exercise their leadership. They must Always keep this in mind. Now, I'd like to expand this out a little bit so we can consider Christ's role as head over men in general. And it's here, or in most of these ways, that women also are included in the headship. And yet again, we're still going to focus on men. That's the focus of our passage. And men, you need to understand that God has a unique, again, headship over you as you exercise authority, but he has unique headship over you simply as one of his children and as a male who is one of his children. Because you're uniquely male. You're not the same as a female. And so God's headship over you has unique aspects to it. Again, so women for, for you, as you hear these particular uh, ways that Christ exercises headship, he does these over you as well. Nonetheless, men, stay with me this morning because this is Christ's authority over you. First, he exercises this authority in the form of a superior. This is really important and it's why I belabored this last week. There is headship which does involve one who is superior ruling over another. And that superiority is based on their, and I used the big word ontology, that is their form of being. Christ, God, is superior because he is God. He has a different order of being. We come from him. Every human being is on the same level, the same order of being, even though they have different abilities. God is inherently an order always superior over men and over creation. But that does not mean that when a man leads his wife, it implies that he is superior. Nor does it mean that he has the same scope of authority as Christ does. This is incredibly important. The church has gone so wrong when they take Christ's authority over a man and somehow consider it essentially the same as a man's authority over a woman. It has similarities, but Christ is and ever Always will be God, and so He exercises His authority over men as a superior, and no man ever does that over a woman. Additionally, Christ exercises His lordship in superiority over every aspect of a man's life. A woman, a man may not exercise His authority to the same extent as Christ exercises authority over us. Men do not have the right to rule over women in every level of their being. Christ does. Men don't. Remember that I said that, and we will work our way into that next week. Additionally, the idea that man is master over a woman, that the male-female relationship is the same as a master-slave relationship is a grievous error that has also led to many problems. Headship of a master over a slave is not the same as headship of a man over a woman. And either way, if you equate headship male headship over women to Christ over men, or men over uh, man over a slave, as it were, or even, even over an employee to some degree, then you've misunderstood entirely the nature of the male-female relationship, which we'll get into next week. Christ exercises authority as superior. We already read Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He is the one who holds the universe together. You don't stand before a woman or an employee or a, or a political, you know, or someone in the government, someone who's a citizen, and say, I hold the universe together. Although you would think in some homes and in some countries that that's who the men were and who they thought they were. That they thought they literally were the ones holding the universe together. Don't make that mistake, men. You don't rise to that place. And do not take it in any way. You are an inferior to a superior God who rules over you. Be humbled and be humble. Bend the knee. He rules you. He owns you. He is infinitely superior to you. Guys, if men would just get this, men are like, who am I? What should I do in this world? I'm so confused. I said, what do I do? And I'm not, I'm not minimizing that. The world has, has harmed men in a thousand ways. Satan is destroying manhood just as he's destroying womanhood. But I will tell you who you are. The Bible will tell you who you are. You are a man under authority. You are a male who relates to your Savior and Lord as one who is your superior and ruler. It's not only that, but it is no less than that. That will humble you properly so that you can you can carry out all your other leadership roles and you can respond properly in every situation. Christ is superior to men and thus his authority extends over them uniquely to every part of their lives and being. That's how strong God's authority is, Christ's authority is. Christ's role as head contains similarity to a man's role as head, but transcends the man's role because Christ is infinitely superior to men. Next, Christ exercises his authority not only as a superior, but also in the form of the chief shepherd and bridegroom. And we already discussed this. He is the one who oversees all the other shepherds. And you may not try to step into his place as the chief shepherds. How many times in churches do you have the pastor or even the elders who throw their authority about as though somehow they're chief. They're, they're the ones that everyone ought to be yielding to just simply on their own authority. They don't have authority on their own. It is drawn, it is brought from God and they must always remember that the chief shepherd is coming. Same with the bride. Or excuse me, the bridegroom. Men, yes, you have a wife if you're married. You have a wife who is your bride. You are the bridegroom. But remember, you're the little bee bridegroom. There's a bigger bridegroom coming. And how you treat your wife, you're going to answer to that larger bridegroom who is the one who oversees his church as his wife. Hebrews 13:17 certainly says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. But how? As those who will give an account. You will give an account as a shepherd. You will give an account as a husband. Reminded of John 3.29 as John the Baptist uh, reflects on the nature of of Christ, the the Messiah. says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. That was Jesus. But the friend, that's John the Baptist, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase. I must increase decrease. Yes, you have a bride if you are a husband, and you are to humbly, graciously lead her. There's real leadership. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. There's real authority that's found there, but it's only exercised in light of the fact that the, the bigger bridegroom, the better bridegroom is coming, and you will answer to him, and you need to remember this, men. Also, he rules. Now, these are things, those first couple, you're like, okay, Chris, we understand he's the Lord and ruler. We understand that submitting to Christ is what we need to do. And there's one more that you're going to fully agree with. Again, as a well-taught church who, who, who delights to be underneath Christ, because the, the next form in which Christ rules is through his word. Right? His means of his ruling. And he rules through his word, of course. And so men are to submit to the authority of Scripture. Isaiah 66, 2. For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, the one who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Man, you're to tremble. I'm a man, you know, I don't fear anything. You had best fear the word of the Lord. You had best fear God. You had best humble yourself underneath his authority through his word. It's mediated authority. We're not waiting for Jesus to show up and tell you what to do. He's told you what to do in his word, and so you are to humble yourself underneath that. Now, again, the men sitting in this room are like, we got that, the majority. Christ is the sovereign ruler. We know we submit to him. We know he's the bridegroom. We know he's the chief shepherd. We know we submit to his word. But here's where things get a little dicey because Christ has other means of mediating his authority that men don't like and that Christian men don't like either. So Christ also rules over you in the form of church authority. Wait a minute, I thought we were the authority. We're the men. It's only a certain amount of men who actually rule in any church, the elders, but even the elders are subject, what? To the other elders. Even the shepherds are sheep. And so men, you are called to submit yourselves to Christ as you come underneath the leadership of the local church. And here's where many and our our more radical homeschool movement and some other places have gotten this wrong, that men are autonomous, essentially. They oversee their families. They attach to the church as they desire, but essentially they rule. They've totally missed the point of this passage. They're not only under Christ. They're under Christ as Christ mediates his authority through all these other means. His word, his church. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. That's not for women That's for men and women. And so men, you are called to submit yourself underneath the authority of the local church as it is properly and biblically exercised. And you go, okay, okay, Chris, that one wasn't too hard either, we know that. How about this one? Men, you are called to respond to Christ's headship over you in the form of his government. You men are called to respond to Christ as he rules you through the governing authorities. Oh, we don't like that one at all. Well, I'm, I, again, I'm autonomous. I I don't have to respond to the government. It's a bad government. Well, many of them are, but at this point in time, there is no good government, and there was not when Paul wrote Romans 13.1. It wasn't like that was a good government, so he could say, "Look, submit yourself to that government." Nero's government's good. The Roman emperors are good. Also, oh, rule of law. It's so much better than. You just don't know your history. You think, you think this is bad. You think what we have now is a difficult governmental system. It's getting worse. This is, this is the best you are ever going to see. All right, put me back into the Roman Empire. That would have been great. So much rule of law. You understand Roman rule of law. We're the law. And we come in and we destroy you. We destroy your civilization. We totally wipe you out. We drag you off into slavery. And then we say obey our rules. That makes for great Peace. Because they ruled everything. And if you didn't, what would come and destroy you and kill you, take your children, take your stuff, and burn down your country? That was the rule of law. I don't think that's where we want to go. But it was government. And that was the government to which the men were called to submit. Now, again, we've worked our way through some of these things. The bottom line is that wherever the government does not direct men in direct violation of scriptural principles, and most directly when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel, you are to submit as a man and you are not accomplishing your role as a man if you don't submit. It's not men don't submit. It is the structure and basic nature of men that they what? Submit to Christ through his authority. So women submit, men don't submit. Are you getting my point? Are you getting the point of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Men submit everywhere. They have their own ro- role of authority. And they don't submit in that, but they submit around that so they might properly live that out. Now, final thought here under this, how men submit, to what form? Men submit to Christ in the form of his creation. That is, in how he created them. You were created as a man, not a woman you may not respond to God's creation of you as a man and say, I won't be that. I am going to be a woman. You do not have that authority. You were created to be a man, and therefore, regardless of how you feel, regardless of how you were raised, regardless of what society says, regardless of the things that might rage inside your inner man of what you want to do, you are not allowed to treat yourself or view yourself in any way differently other than a man. And there's no difference between maleness and being a man. There's no difference between gender and sex. When it comes to this, God views you the same. I will say this gently, but God knows your pronouns. And he's the one who determines what they are, not you. You may never assume your own identity when it comes to maleness and femaleness. This is how he created you. Not only your unique creation as male, but all that comes along with it, the roles of being a man. You may not abdicate those. Men do those to greater or lesser degree. They're better or worse at them. But you may not abdicate your role as a leader in the home. You may not abdicate your role as a leader in the church. That Men do this. You may not set, step aside because you don't want to do those things or you don't like that role. This is what God has given you so you learn how to live it out, regardless of your personality. Now, Christ's headship over men is not only his authority over them. Number two here, Christ loves men. Part of his authority over them, his headship, headship is not only authority, it is also love and care. And men need to be reminded of this. Because being a man is a difficult task. It's not being that being a woman is an easy one. But since we're focusing on men, you're called to do things that are very hard. And you're called to stand up in a society that is beating you down in every way to tell you that you cannot live out the things that God has given you to do. You need to know that your ruler loves you. He gave his life for you. He has your best in mind. He is caring for you when you fail and when you flail and when you're not the head that you need to be at home and when you do not exercise your authority properly and when you are struggling to do what you need to do, your head still loves you and cares for you and meets your needs. Christ loves men. He desires their best. He instructs them. He sanctifies them. He disciplines them. He saves men laying down his very life for them. Your head also sanctifies you. Christ sanctifies you. He is drawing you to look like himself. This is his greatest goal for you is that you look like Jesus. And so he's drawing you to, to, to live his very character. Men, you grew up, let's say you grew up in a home where there was no father figure. The father figure you had was harsh and, and harmful. The example of everything a father should not be. Those are difficult things. The past is strong. The past is highly influential, but the past is not determinative. You now have a model in Christ of a father who cares and loves and sanctifies and has the power to protect and guard and help you instead of hurt you, and that's how he exercises it. You don't need to be confused about who you are. You don't need to be confused about what a father is or what a man is because the Bible tells you, which is why it is so deadly when Satan removes the idea of manhood and tries to suck it out of the Bible. No, there is manhood, and God tells you what you must be, and you ground yourself in His declaration about who you are, and not society's declaration of what a man is to be. Not on the you know, on the uh, in unfortunate macho side of things, kind of throw stuff around and dominate people. You know, the the, the just the, the toxic side of what we call masculinity, but also not on the feminized side. Where there is no leadership, and we just you know men don't know how to do anything, and, and they they just they're always responders. He teaches you how to live. Ephesians five twenty six, so that he might sanctify her. That is Christ sanctifying the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And Christ, and, and I hope men, this will be of, of such benefit to you, such a blessing to you. Christ nourishes and cherishes you. It's very is very motherly emotional kind of, of thought. Because in Ephesians 5, 29, says, no one ever hated his own flesh, speaking of how a man is supposed to treat a woman, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. He nourishes you. He cherishes you. This is part of his, his maleness as God, as it were. This is part of how he, he fleshes out his headship over you is that part of it is nourishing and cherishing, feeding, warming, caring, protecting it doesn't mean he protects you from difficulty. It means he shepherds you through it. It doesn't mean no hardship comes in your life. It means he's close to you and draws near to men. It doesn't just draw near to women. It doesn't just draw near emotionally to, the, you know, to someone who's emotional. Your emotions have nothing to do with it. He draws near to you, close to you. Whether you feel his presence or not, he is there. And he is there nourishing you, warming you, as a mother would bring the child to feed it close with the warmth of her body. This is what God does for men. He cares for you, and you need to learn how to love and delight in this truth. The world will not care for you this way. You're not some kind of autonomous person who operates within the world to do your own thing. You are one who is nourished and cared for and ruled over by the God of the universe, by Christ himself. Well, how do we respond to this? Really, this is bound up in Christ's rulership, but just simply men's role in submission. How do we respond to Christ as head? We submit to the leadership, instruction, and discipline of Christ. We, we come under it. We recognize him as leader. We respond to all of his instructions and to his discipline. We yield, and we do not get angry and shake our fist when God brings his discipline. I'm oh, a man, you can't do this to me. No, I do this because I love you, says your loving father, your head. Men receive and respond to the strength and provision of Christ. Not only can you not do this on your own, you are not to try to do it on your own. You must receive his strength. You cannot accomplish your purposes if you try to do this on your own. That is not submitting to scripture, not putting yourself in the places that God has given you so that you can be strong. Men, you are not some kind of macho, autonomous man who develops all your own resources and builds everything you need all by yourself so that you can accomplish your own goals. You are needy and you must respond. You are called to respond to the strength and provision of Christ. I mean, who would have thought that that would be a negative concept But for too many men it is. I don't don't need anybody's help. Yes, you do. You need the help of the God of the universe. You cannot lead your wife well. You cannot lead the church well. You cannot accomplish what you need to anywhere in society. Men help Christ to accomplish God the Father's purpose and work. In their submission role to Christ as their head, men help Christ accomplish God the Father's purpose and work. You are not here, men, to accomplish your own work. Oh, you have work to do. You have a career to pursue, to provide for your family and care for the church. You you have a family to raise. But all of this is done underneath or in with the thought of what are Christ's purposes in the world. To build his church, to make disciples, to ultimately see that others look like Jesus. That's what you're called to do. And you may not build your life around your own purposes, your own desires, your own gain, your own rules. You are here to do the work of God the Father because that is what your head is here to do. Christ came to do the work of the Father. You men were left to do that work. And so you must look into your life and determine, am I living this for me? I I rule my home and I rule my life based on my own desires and goals. Then you are failing and God will hold you accountable for that. You are to build your life and family and your career all around the purposes of God in Christ. And this is your call. And of course, then, fourthly, you are to honor and glorify Christ alone. You are not to honor and glorify yourself. You are not to puff out your chest and say, look at what I'm doing. Look at how great things are. Or the flip side of it, to say, everybody, look at me because everything's so poor about me. I've got nothing. I wasn't able to accomplish anything. And all your life is built around having people focus on you because you're a failure. Both of those are arrogant and bringing no glory to Christ whatsoever. You point to him and you say, he is great. I'm meager. My gifts are limited. My influence has been small. Great. Glorify Christ in what he's given you. I've had bigger influence and I've got a big company. Great. Great. Bend the knee to Jesus and glorify him because he deserves it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your headship over us as men. We thank you that you bound all of our authority and you direct it and you strengthen it and you encourage us in all of the right ways that we are to live as men. And I pray for the men in this room. I pray that they would remember who they are in light of your word, that they would not determine their their, the nature of manhood on the basis of a culture that has gone insane. Lord, help us to to recognize, to respond to your headship, and as we do so, might we be the men that you've called us to be. And we step forward into our families and into the church and into society, receiving your strength, humbling ourselves underneath your instructions, and bringing you fullest glory in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.